Well, that was uh, You'll Never Walk Alone Again, uh, and welcome to the Rookie and Burjo podcast, our second edition of the uh, podcast, and welcome Burjo, Darren Burgess. G'day, Rookie. So, um, I said we're going to intro every week with uh, You'll Never Walk Alone, and the first week we had the MCG crowd, the 95,000 people singing it. That one was after the Barcelona Champions League game last year. Uh, you'll remember that uh, Liverpool were 3-0 down after the first leg. I remember I was in Barcelona for that first leg and I thought, well, 1-0 will be OK, 2-0, yeah, 3-0, nah, we're not going to uh, get over 3-0. But uh, came back to Anfield and uh, Liverpool scored four, won the game 4-0. Arguably the greatest night at Anfield, you would think. I mean, probably yeah. won't beat Istanbul, but uh, the greatest night at Anfield. And then... I'm sure all the Liverpool fans uh, listening would remember the the whole team and the staff lined up in front of the cop and sang "You'll Never Walk Alone." That's the uh, that's the recording we just uh, we just heard. Just an amazing night of theatre, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about today, or initially anyway, is our time at uh, at Liverpool. And we finished last week with the end of the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, and uh, you and I. Jumped on a plane the uh, the day after we got eliminated and headed up to uh, to Liverpool. But um, for a Manchester United fan, Berger, that must have been <laughs> uh, you know that must have been pretty tricky. Now I'm not sure many people realise that uh, yeah. this man was a dyed in the wool Man United uh, fan, and in fact uh, I was uh, I was approached to to uh, take the job at Liverpool. It was a new job. They wanted to completely review revise their they set up at Liverpool and they created a new job as head of sports medicine and sports science. And I was uh, approached and uh, and headhunted for that uh, that job. And and Burjo and I, along with Phil Coles, the uh, the Socceroos physio, we we discussed the fact that you know wouldn't it be great if we could continue to work together because we'd had a great working relationship with the Socceroos. And we thought, well, we'll just keep an eye out for any jobs that uh, that we could work together. So. I was approached about this Liverpool job, and uh, and I thought, well, I'll I know I'll ring Burjo and see what he wants to do. So uh, I rang Burjo and I said, uh, Burjo, uh, is there any team in the Premier League you know you couldn't work for? And uh, and he said, oh, you know, the Blue of Manchester, I'd struggle with. I said, oh no, no, that's all right. And then he's a sort of an afterthought. He said, oh, you know, don't think I could uh, I could do uh, Liverpool really. And I said, oh, okay, Burjo, I'll ring someone else. And he said, oh, hang 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 on a minute. <laughs> Anyway, yes, so uh, well. as it turned out, uh, you managed to rid yourself of your uh, Man United past and now uh, a true Liverpool fan. So <laughs> we we jumped on that plane and, and just tell us what it was like when we got to, to Liverpool. Obviously a famous club, you know, probably the greatest club of the sort of 80s and 90s and so on. And they'd been through a, a relatively down period. They obviously won the Champions League in 2005 and... I oh, come to the end of the Rafa Benita reign, if, Benita's reign, if you like, and uh, um, obviously still had some great players, but they were they were they were clearly had fallen off the pace behind your Chelsea's and and Man United's and Arsenal's and so on. So, wh- what happened when you got there? What did you find? Yeah, it was it was, um, it was a bit surreal because we we just beaten Serbia in the World Cup, and you know we're on a bit of a high, but a bit of a low, and um, yeah, the next day we're off. Um, straight from Joburg to to Manchester and then uh, Manchester Airport and then off to Liverpool. And we arrived there on a Friday and we had to start on the Monday um, was the start of uh, pre-season with the players who weren't sort of in the 
playing in the World Cup. So there wasn't many of the starters. I remember David Ngog and Lucas Laver and those guys were there, but that was around about it. Um, but Rafa had been um, sacked or left and he'd taken 18 staff with him. So you turn up to one of the top 10 biggest clubs on the planet, probably, and uh, of any sport, and there was just nothing there. There was, um, you know, a bare bones gym and, and uh, there was a, a couple of physios that were still employed and uh, Sammy Lee as an assistant coach and that was it. Um, so there was no manager? So, no manager. No staff? No, no staff. No fitness staff, no recruiting no, staff, no football? Academy staff. Nothing. Nothing. Um, and all and been basically Spanish appointees yes. of, of Rafa Benitez and that all basically up and left when uh, when he left. Yeah, and no, I, I remember walking into the where the sort of fitness staff office was and um, there was one computer and I turned it on and it was all Spanish. <laughs> um, and so... Um, yeah, it was it was quite surreal. So uh, I recall uh, interviewing um, people over that weekend when we got there, um, basically to start on Monday to try and help us out. Um, so it was, yeah, it was it was very different, um, not what we expected, um, but it was a great challenge to build a, a department from virtually from scratch. So like like we said, there was a couple of physios that were there, um, but to build a department from scratch was a was a, a good challenge and and. Yeah, it was it was a really tough time because the club wasn't particularly successful. There was a change in ownership. Um, they appointed Roy Hodgson as manager, and that was you know probably you know it didn't go as well as what we'd all hoped. Um, but he was hamstrung a lot by the finances that just aren't available to weren't available to him that there were to you know subsequent managers and um, yeah, well, I think Roy's you know always. Copped a fair bit of criticism for his time at uh, at Liverpool, but I, as you say, I think it it was tough. I mean, I think we would admit that Roy was a delight to work with. I mean, yes. he was tremendously uh, cooperative and uh, and listened to ideas and and uh, quite progressive. I think as far as yes. football managers uh, go. Uh, well, you um, can't deny his record. Yes, and no, no one can a have been in the game at the top level um, for that long, but also his results. You know, are outstanding by and large, but as you say, there was it was a tumultuous time at the club. The the owners, the the, the Texan owners, were, were were sort of being hounded out of the club, really, by mm -hmm. the fans and by uh, by people. The fans definitely wanted Kenny Dalglish as their manager, mm -hmm. so they never accepted Roy, or never were prepared to accept Roy. There was constantly chanting for for Kenny to be the to, to come back and be the manager, and Roy struggled uh, with that, I think. Yeah, uh, look, I remember in, in that first game we played Arsenal um, at Anfield, and Joe Cole, who was our big signing, um, mm. got sent off just before half time. Yeah, and ridiculous decision. Yeah, shocking yeah. decision, and and. Uh, and we sort of scratched around to a 1-1 draw, which was a great result. But even then, it was just a bad start to everybody's um, sort of reign at, at Anfield. And, um, yeah, it just wasn't um, wasn't great for Roy. And by October, um, you know, the, the, the crowd were chanting for Kenny. And so it was, it was a really tough time. It was a great, um, when we look back on it, a great learning experience to be part of, you know, such a big club going through such a bad time because every day was something different. You know, we had the the Alberto Aquilani sort of, you know, dealing with players like him to, 
you know, that first meeting with with Gerard and Carragher and um, Pepe Reina and Torres, you know, when we tried to sell sell them what we were going to bring and what we were going to do, and they basically just walked up, walked out, and said, "All right, we'll see." And you know, so it was. It was a tough sell. Um, and the, cult- the culture, the playing culture there, I mean, you've just come from an AFL club. How would you describe the culture when you when you got there? Yeah, it's, it's um, I guess most people think of the Premier League as the, um, the beacon of they've got so much money, so everything must be at the top level. But I think coming in from a Benitez-led team, um, Everything was so manager-dependent and he had such control as evidenced by the number of staff um, that left with him um, that whatever he said went. So if he didn't like GPS monitoring, they just didn't do it. If he didn't like um, doing strength work, they just didn't do it. So, um, yeah, it was very different. Um, The players were in the gym once a week, um, and that was the day before game to do some tendo testing, which was, you know, sort of a, a force plate or force transducer type testing. And so there was no culture of uh, of gym work or strength training at all. None, no culture of. And I think it's we have to say that um, that's reasonably common uh, in in the Premier League. So um, it's not necessarily good, bad. It's just different, and um, we think. We happen to think that a gym culture will help and, and you know, mm. time in the gym will certainly help your performance. Um, but they just didn't do it and um, that was the, the, the Spanish way. And um, and I think two years before we got there, they were in the running to, for the title up until, you know, a disaster at Middlesbrough. So um, uh, you couldn't say that that method didn't necessarily work, mm. but at that time they had... Torres at his peak, Alonso at his peak, Mascherano at his peak. You know they had an unbelievable spine of mm. of players, um, which which uh, yeah were it certainly wasn't the case. You know six months into our regime, when we had Mascherano had left, Torres had left. Um, you had different players, you know, Christian Poulsen and those guys, which are not Mascherano and Alonso, mm. with all due respect. So you mentioned Torres. I mean, obviously. Uh had an amazing couple of seasons at, at Liverpool, but uh, by the time we got there, he just played in the World Cup. He got injured in the uh, in the final, yep. and he certainly wasn't the same player that uh, that season at Liverpool, was he? Yeah, I remember we um, he'd lost a bit of confidence in his body, and I remember I speed testing him. I don't know if you remember in the mm. indoor area yeah. there, and his speed was still elite. It was three points two point six eight for um, for twenty meters, which is Obscene. So he drew a lot of confidence in his body from that, um, but he was so disillusioned with um, his friends in Alonso and Mascherano leaving. um, You could tell that he just wasn't the same player. Um, uh, We had children about the same time, so we bonded a lot and uh, I I got along with him quite well. Um, But I remember just the, and this is just the nature of, of his first game after signing for Chelsea, was against us. Happened to be against Liverpool. Yeah, right? it was Stanford just amazing Bridge. at Stamford yeah. Bridge. And uh, so, you know, literally you're working with him two days before because I was working with him one-on-one because everybody knew that he was going to leave so he wasn't allowed to train with the team. So I'd go in at five o'clock in the afternoon and just work with him one-on-one. And two days later, 
He's wearing blue and, you know, lining up uh, in, in the change room. So it was, it was a, you know, as you can attest more than anybody, that night when when he shipped off to Chelsea and Andy Carroll came in was was one of the more bizarre transfer deadline days that there's probably ever been. Yeah, that was incredible. Uh, just to, to fill people in, I mean, we Torres was desperate to leave. Uh, I think Chelsea had been in his ear and uh, um, Abramovich decide, thought that, you know, they got Torres, they'd win everything because he'd always played very well against Chelsea. Mm-hmm. And um, so he was desperate to leave. So he's sitting outside the manager's office sort of pacing up and down wanting to wanting the clearance to go. Liverpool had said, we're not going to let you go unless we can replace you. Mm. And the replacement thereafter was Andy Carroll, who had been a been in great form for for Newcastle that, Super, that season. And, and Big, and strong always played guy. Well against Liverpool played as very well, well yeah. against us, didn't he? Uh, scored, I think. And uh, um, but the negotiations were going on and on and on. And normally, when you uh, when you recruit someone or you're going to sign someone, you get them in a day or two beforehand, and you do what they call a signing medical, which is involves in the Premier League, a very prolonged, complex uh, procedure where you you know, do a full examination, you do all the sort of blood tests and strength tests, and then you have multiple MRIs, you know, of their knee, ankle, hip, back. You know, <laughs> they spend about three hours in the MRI machine. There's no player before their sign's ever been injured, so you, no. have, to, you have to kind of check that. <laughs> that's so, true. Yeah. Well, well, it has its advantage. A, it, it can pick up things, uh, you know, if they have got an injury, and Andy Carroll did have an injury. Um and secondly, it also gives you a baseline for you can for look sure. at uh, when they do get a knee injury or something, you can look back and say, well, this is new or that's old. But yes. Andy Carroll was complicated by the fact that uh, he had a, uh, a quad injury uh, that uh, had a, occurred in mysterious circumstances mm-hmm. uh, a couple of weeks beforehand yeah. and he, was out, he wasn't playing. Um, so uh, it got to about – the deadline was 11 o'clock at night and it got to about 6 o'clock in the evening and he still hadn't appeared. Anyway, he eventually arrived at uh, at Melwood at about six o'clock, and um, by a helicopter, I think. By a helicopter, yeah. and uh, we jumped in the car. We had a quick look at him. We jumped in the car and took him off to the hospital to have MRIs. And outside the training ground, Melwood, there were all these supporters chanting and burning Torres shirts, and uh, you know, really angry that Torres, who was a hero to them, mm. uh, was leaving. So there was a lot of emotion there. So we tried to drive our car through that throng of uh, people with, they didn't realise Andy Carroll was in the back, the car's getting thumped and mm-hmm. so on. Anyway, then we uh, we drive into the into the hospital and and as I said, he he had a significant injury and mm-hmm. he was going to be out for for a few weeks and so there was this great debate among our medical staff, the other doctor and myself, should we approve the signing? And there was enormous pressure because if for we sure. said no. Basically, we're left without a striker for the second half of the season because mm. uh, Torres was going to go, and if mm. he didn't go, he wasn't going to play for us. Mm. Um, so there was that pressure. And then on the other hand, you think, well, this guy's got an injury, and he's uh, is he going to be okay? And um, so eventually we decided that, uh, yes, he was okay to, to sign, but he wasn't going to be able to play for probably six weeks uh, yeah. afterwards and so on. And then, uh, then we tried to get from the hospital to the uh, to the to the offices to him to sign the papers. And uh, so we wanted to avoid the, the paparazzi and so on. So <clears throat> we went out and checked out and there didn't seem to be any paparazzi around. So we said to Andy, come on, let's go. And as soon as he appeared, they all jumped out from behind yeah. pillars and started snapping and then chased us all the way to, uh, to uh, it was like a car chase. It was mm. quite 
quite amusing, really. So it was an amazing day. And so yeah. again, the whole time Sky Sports is, you know, televising live from the, the front of Melwood. <laughs> Unbelievable oh, scenes, wasn't it? I remember the next morning I was in at 6 o'clock in the morning and um, there was already uh, the, the one of the ground staff uh, was already peeling down Torres's photo from the gym that we'd put up there, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. It's, that is it's strange. That's one feature that we don't have in, in AFL, obviously, is this mid-season uh, changes or you know, uh, this mid-season window that they have. Uh, do you yeah, think that's a good idea or not? Yeah, I like it. Uh, look, I think, and that's one of the things that hopefully we get across in this podcast with our interviews with people is is more the stories behind it, not necessarily the science, but how yeah. you have to need to be agile and adapt to different situations. You know, we'd gone from a one of the world's quickest strikers um, to then, you know, a tall target man, along with mm. Luis Suarez, who was, of course, signed in the same window. Um, he so, couldn't play to start with either for a particular no, reason. he was <laughs> suspended for biting someone's ear. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was... It was um, I don't mind it. Um, you, you have a complete different physiological profile, um, but I think um, in that situation, I, I'd certainly like, say, the AFL, for instance, to be mature enough to to have something like that, where you can have it fill a need. If you, you know, for example, if a ruckman goes down um, and you don't have an adequate backup ruckman, you can go and pick one up who's not yep. playing in another team, and I, I think that would add. Um, a fair bit to the league and, um, yeah, I, I think it's fine. You know, they do it in rugby league. They sign mid-season in mm. rugby league um, and they can handle it. So, yeah, I don't mind it at all. And around the same time or just before that, Roy Hodgson had been uh, been sacked and the, the fans got their wish. Yep. King Kenny came. In the meantime, I should mention that in the in the first six months we were there, the, the manager the owners and the CEO had all changed. Yep. So it was an incredible time. Uh, all the people that employed us and, and yep. we'd sort of been dealing with were no longer there. Uh, the new owners had come in. John Henry and his uh, Boston uh, group had come in. Yep. They knew nothing about football. They admitted yep. they knew nothing about football, so they were very reliant on uh, on the staff. They brought in a, a, a football director in Damien Camoli who was yep. instrumental in those those signings. Yep. The different, the change of manager. I mean, change of style, change of training. Yeah, very much so. I remember we were playing Manchester United uh, in the FA Cup. I think it was January one or two. It was the first game that yeah. uh, Kenny was. And uh, the night before the game, we meet. Kenny came yeah. in as coach. Um, yeah, it's just surreal for for players and staff and and everybody. So um, obviously, Kenny had been around the club, but not in that that capacity. I think he'd flown in from Dubai to take the. Yeah. Take the Man United game. Um, so it was very surreal. The difference being, uh, you know, Roy was very much a hands-on. Um, he would dictate the training sessions. He would be out there. Um, he was a coach more than was, a manager. Yeah, he? he was very much. Um, and uh, so his staff had left, and Kenny had brought in um, Steve Clark and Kevin Keane, um, who were to do most of the coaching. Um, and Kenny was more a manager, and so he would not necessarily have a hands-on role in the day-to-day designing of the training drills. So, um, yeah, I worked really closely with Steve Clark on on designing the training sessions. And it was a Dow Scott, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah he was. I, look, I thought he reminded me very much of Phil Walsh in terms of his knowledge of the game was unbelievable. Mm. Um, um, but certainly initially it was very hard to get to know him and, yeah, his personality wasn't... 
um, yeah, it wasn't bright and bubbly, was it? You know, he was very much all about the training sessions and the drills and getting those exactly right. Um, so, um, yeah, worked with him in, in designing the sessions or he designed the sessions and and we would just sort of report to him around the... Um, but it was very different, very different, completely different style of playing. So our players had to adapt to the training sessions and we got a lot of sort of niggling injuries in that time because, you know, understandably, the team hadn't been successful. New coach comes in, wants to do it differently and... Yeah, as much as we can sing and dance and say, oh, but they've done too many XLs and D-cells and, oh, their GPS has gone through the roof, the team was going poorly. A, a manager was brought in to change the fortunes and by and large, you know, in that initial mm. six-month period, they did. So So Roy, I mean, Roy didn't like small-sided games. Where the players no. love small-sided games. Yep. So when Kenny came in and Steve Clark came in, they got their wish of the lots of small-sided games. A lot of possession drills and small-sided yeah. games and that's what, that's what they did, a lot of competitive type drills, which the players really liked. But that comes with its own risks in terms of loads going through, you know, without going into too, too much detail, hips and and knees and, you know, hamstrings and quads. So there was that initial spike, which there sometimes is, but I think we all sort of agreed that the team was going poorly and, and if that was the price to, you know, to play better... We have to admit that it coincided with bringing Luis Suarez into the club. So, um, yeah, yeah, so that that's always going to help because he just he was incredible from day one. So, yeah, it's a fascinating story, Luis Suarez. As you mentioned before, when he when we signed him, he'd actually was under suspension when he was playing for Ajax in uh, in in uh, in the Dutch league. And in fact, uh, I'd gone with Roy Hodgson to to scout. Uh, we were playing a Europa League game uh, the next day in Holland and uh, Roy and I went up to uh, watch Ajax play in a Champions League game specifically to watch Suarez and it was clear he was a he was a superstar mm. I and mean, a great player. But, you know, he arrived and, he, and you know, we'd heard about this biting thing, you know, he'd been suspended for biting someone. I mean, biting, you know, mm. you know elbowing, kneeing, kicking, but biting, you know, and, uh, and so... We weren't sure what to expect. You know, we sort of thought we we're going to meet this really sort of aggressive, ferocious, sort of uh, nasty guy. And, in fact, he was completely the opposite, wasn't he? Yeah, he was uh, – it's hard to describe. But I remember, again, the first training session, and this isn't uh, this is new to anyone, I'm sure, who's watched him play, but um, we had to train him indoors because we hadn't officially signed him. Um, so we had to – do some indoor sessions, but when we finally able to train outdoors, I remember um, just happened to be walking off the field at the same time as Jamie Carragher, and he just said he's going to be unbelievable. And I said, "What makes you think that?" He said, "He, because he, he had to play on him, if you like, mark him." And he said, "I, I won't swear, but I effing love him. I love his competitiveness. He's going to be incredible for us." And so Jamie said that after one session, you know. So. Um, he was just a, an absolute competitor. He would cheat against Maxi Rodriguez and Fabio Aurelio and Lucas Lever in cards, you know, <laughs> to win on a, on a Friday night before a Saturday game. So you can imagine how competitive he was. But off the field, I've rarely met a more family-oriented person, um, absolute gentleman. Um, yeah, just an absolute pleasure to work with because he's one of the few players in the Premier League where you had to restrict rather than coerce. Um, so 
We asked him to go into the gym because he wasn't a big fan of the gym. Um, but we asked him, and keep in mind, this guy had played 55 games a year for five years straight. So whatever he was doing was working <laughs> before he came to us. We didn't yep. have anything to do with his, you know, his enhancement. Um, but we signed a young defender called Sebastian Coates, who was a Uruguayan who looked up to him and he needed some strength work. Um, he was had poor body control and body awareness. So we said to Louise, can you come into the gym? Because wherever you go, Seba will go. And so Louis said, yep, no problem. I'll, I'll go in the gym and make sure that Seba goes in there. So yeah, he, he was brilliant. Suarez, brilliant. Yeah, just lo- always smiling, lovely yeah. guy. What's that cup of tea? And he's yeah, the, Uruguayan the matcha or whatever it's called. Yeah, he had, so. yeah. And, I mean, did you you actually had to uh, play in some of those little games uh, yeah. against him, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, early on. Uh, one of the, the toughest jobs as a fitness coach in the Premier League is to bring players in the day after a game who hadn't been playing, hadn't been selected, to do an extra session, it was brutal, and not many of the coaches turned up, so it was always up to the fitness coach. Because you've got these internationals like Maxi Rodriguez and and yeah. you know Argentinian superstars who, for whatever reason, weren't in the starting lineup. Jamie Carragher, those guys, and so the only way to get something out of the session was to make it competitive. You just had to. So we'd play five on five, six on six, um, and uh, often there'd be an odd number, so I'd stand there and you know, just pretend to play and it'd be snowing outside so we'd go indoors and, um, yeah, I remember one of the first games and I honestly I didn't do much so let's not pretend that I did anything other than was a decoy and uh, but whenever the ball did come to me I remember Suarez just kicking the crap out of me and <laughs> he didn't speak much English and I had a great relationship with Maxi Rodriguez because unashamedly I was a fan probably my favourite player to work with. I just loved the way he played and his attitude. And uh, through him, said, what's going on? You know, why is he kicking me so much? And Suarez, through Maxi translating, just said, on the field, you're a player. Off the field, you're a professor. Um, they called, always called the fitness coach the professor, <laughs> the South American. So, um, yeah, I, I do recall, you know, probably one of the more surreal experiences um, uh, for me personally was the uh, Man United game after Suarez's racism um, ban. That was probably the most intense um, atmosphere. Willie or Willie not <laughs> shake, shake hands, uh, yeah. Everest's hand. And then afterwards when United won, um, you know, just walking up to the tunnel, I remember Steve Clark saying to me, as soon as the game finishes, you get near Suarez because uh, I'm not a big guy, but compared to soccer players, I am. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I remember just walking behind um, Suarez, walking into the race and uh, into the tunnel, and uh, I remember ever carrying on and all the United players trying to jump over Suarez and not touch him, but just jump over, and myself and Dirk Kout, Martin Skirtle and Daniel Agger, um just sort of walking next to Suarez and then it kicked off in the tunnel um, where I remember Daniel Agger, um, who was a pretty rough yep. player and been in some pretty heavy uh, past experiences as a youth, just, uh, yeah, without giving too much away, uh, doing some, some pretty impressive things as a, as a then Liverpool fan um, to, to uh, Rio Ferdinand and, yeah, it was it was 
unbelievable that that atmosphere in the tunnel after the game. Mm. Um, yeah, it's never yeah. really been re- the, the press didn't get onto that. No, they? they didn't. It was, uh, um, it was yeah, it was just fascinating because yeah. I even if I wanted to escape, Doc, I couldn't because I was just <laughs> hemmed in by all the security guards and. Literally standing next to Suarez when it was all going off. So yeah, that was, he was a very controversial character, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, Suarez, he was. But what a player. Wow, incredible player and incredible. Uh, certainly, you know, whatever he did on the field, but off the field, complete gentleman and uh, full of respect for uh, all the staff. And you wouldn't find any staff at Liverpool have a bad word about him. No, he almost took Liverpool to a championship after after we left. I mean, yeah, I think most, most people would say that he's probably the best striker Um you know, to ever play for Liverpool, certainly in the conversation along with, you know, Fowler and mm. Rush and Torres. So, yeah. yeah, for sure. Stevie G, obviously a uh, Liverpool legend, um, someone you obviously spent a lot of time with. What was your first encounter with Stevie? Yeah, we we put a presentation together to sort of say this is some of the things that we're going to bring into the club and uh, we thought it was best as captain of the club to sort of demonstrate to him and... Carragher and I just remember him getting up walking out of the presentation not even saying thanks just saying okay we'll see we've been pretty good before this so we'll see and um, I thought okay fair enough <laughs> fair enough he's seen enough he's done enough yeah. you know we he'd been through a lot of managers a lot, of, a lot, a lot of managers of staff, a lot of fitness staff of... I remember him saying to me um, the previous fitness guy he said I liked him a lot as a person but he was a bad fitness coach, the one before that, didn't like him at all, but it's as fit as I've ever been, so I'd rather respect a fitness coach than like them, and I thought, okay, fair enough. And I do remember about five months into my, um, into us being there, he he said to me, um, I hear you're a United fan, and, uh, and look, uh, it's not um, it's not new news that he dislikes United more than he does Everton. Um, and uh, I said, yeah, how'd you hear that? And he said, uh, believe me, I know everything that goes on in this town. And I said, yeah, <laughs> I agree. And he said, um, I said, is that going to be an issue? And I was really nervous about the response. And he said, no, 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 you've you've proven you've proven you're one of us. Um, so uh, that was a, a big moment because. I always prided myself on being first to get there, last to leave. Mm. Rain, hell or shine, be out there. If Joe Cole needed some extra crossing work or, you know, I'd be out there doing it. You know, Jordan Henderson needed some extra. So mm. it was nice that he noticed that. So um, absolute pro, uh, just incredible to work with. Um, unbelievable competitor, though. I loved watching the five-a-side sort of, you know, small-sided games because... He just refused to lose, you know, uh, no matter what it took, he would be in there. And for, for some AFL folk who think that soccer is a, not particularly the toughest game, just go and watch a, a, a five-a-side training in the Premier League when, when, you know, the loser has to put away the goals or the bibs or do a lap or whatever the punishment is. That's two-footed challenges. That's, that's everything. So, And Stevie was the epitome of that. Um, so fortunate enough to... Um, to spend, you know, two and a half years working with, with someone like that. That was amazing. You feel very privileged, don't you? I mean, even just watching training, you know. Yes. I mean, you think, wow, you know, watching Gerard and Suarez and these players just on a five to, you know, people that pay a fortune to do that. Yes. And we, yeah. You get to do that every day. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, he, he was he was superb to work with, never questioned anything, never mm. just took a few word and, yeah, he was great. 
It was funny you mentioned how he, he was talking about you being a Man United fan. And yet two of the long-serving Liverpool staff, one was a, a Man United fan, one was an yep. Everton fan, and remained so despite being there for years and years, which I found very strange. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's... Uh, at Liverpool, as you know, it's you know sixty forty or seventy thirty. So Smalley was, you know, was the the one Evertonian, but the boys would take the Mickey out of him. I think it's easy being a Everton fan in a in Liverpool because you're always sort of seen as the uh, you know the less <laughs> successful. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but Man United a little bit different because of the the rivalry, I guess. Um, you, you mentioned Jordan Henderson there briefly. I mean, he was signed while we were there. Um, I remember sitting down with John Henry, the new owner, and and I was sort of helping out with the, the football side of it then, and and he asked me who the best young players in the country were, and we mm. went through went through a list of half a dozen, and and Henderson was one of those, and uh, he'd I think already played for England at that stage, and he was at Sunderland, Sunderland, um, and we signed him the following uh, summer, and I think it's probably fair to say that initially. He struggled and the fans certainly didn't warm to him. And, and at one stage, after a couple of years, I think he was going off to Fulham or somewhere. Yeah, and, he uh, was, yeah. Yeah, he was offered to Fulham and, and told what to was go. Your, what was your impressions uh, of Jordan uh, Henderson? Jordan was... One of the great things that John Henry and Damien Camoli brought in, um, for whatever, you know, John Henry is obviously lauded um, now and Damien has a mixed um, attitude um, amongst the Liverpool fans. But what they did do is they identified, as you know, Okay, that Stevie probably had a, a couple of years left, um, two or three years left at that point, um, and so statistically they were able to identify um, who is most able to attempt to replicate Stevie, which is of course impossible, but statistically who's producing numbers like um, and who's under twenty-two and. Jordan came up on all of our models in terms of who was able to. To deliver that, obviously he's not the same level, so we're not suggesting that. So he was signed, and and as a as a project, it wasn't signed to come in and take over from someone like Stephen Gerrard straight away. Of course not. Um, but he was a project, and it's hard when you go to a Liverpool, a club like Liverpool, for twenty four million pounds. They want immediate impact, and mm-hmm. and obviously Jordan didn't do that. We we'd identified. Um, I remember Gal Clichy as a left back and um, some other players uh, like uh, I'm just trying to think of the the United fullback who went came from Blackburn and United just pipped us at the post. Um, he's still there anyway. Um, so I identified a few players, but Henderson was one that that we're able to get. And um, but workaholic. I love the fact that when um, the manager at the time said, "Listen, Fulham." are in for you, it might be a good move for you to go um, because it's going to be hard for you to get a starting spot here. He said, no, I want to stay. I want to fight for my spot. I'll back myself. And, you know, by midway through that year with Brendan Rodgers, he was he mm. was starting and a crucial member. So, Yeah, do you think it was a confidence? I always felt that he just lacked confidence. He would always be, you know, and the, and the crowd used to go crazy about this, Always passing backwards, passing sideways, never sort of uh, moving the ball forward. Well, I think they were used to Stevie spraying <laughs> fifty metre balls and finding people, you know. So mm. it's pretty hard to come in under that. So maybe it was that initially, but certainly you watch him now, and he is uh, an incredible player, and has has clearly gone above what 
any of us probably thought he oh. might. So And a leadership as well. Yeah, yeah. I remember playing there um, last year uh, or maybe 18 months ago now and um, there was a dodgy penalty decision from an Arsenal point of view. We thought it was a pretty ordinary penalty decision and um, uh, one of our defenders was... Um, uh, was into one of their players, and and Henderson just did not hesitate in that in the tunnel to come in. It was we thought Mo Salah had dived, and Papa, the defender, had gone in and said, "Ah, oh, you dive, you dive," and was sort of being a bit intimidating. And Henderson was the first on the scene, and and as much as I was hoping Arsenal would win that game, I, you couldn't help but admire, mm. um, you know, Henderson being first on the scene to to remonstrate. So yeah, it's great. He's developed into a magnificent player. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right, but all, uh, all good things come to an end. Um, Kenny Dalglish got uh, well, moved on, shall we say? Yep, yep. And Brendan Rogers got appointed. Um, yeah. And tell us your first experience with yeah. Brendan Rogers. Uh, I remember Kenny getting um, uh, moving on in the off season. Um, so we'd made the um, uh, FA Cup final. We, we won the Carlin Cup. Yep. Uh, lost the FA Cup final and. Kenny got moved on, rightly or wrongly. That was that was a decision made, and we didn't know who we'd, you know, been speculated who it might be. But Brendan came in, and uh, because everyone else was on holiday and I was still around, I was tasked with showing him around Melwood, um, which is a traditional thing for for um, the managers to do. And so I showed him around, and then the cameras left, and he'd said to me, first thing he said to me uh, when the cameras were away was. Uh, uh, Darren, I wanted you sacked. Um, <laughs> I said, okay, fair enough. Um, why? And he said, well, you know, it's traditional when a manager comes in, they bring their own people in. Uh, but the owners uh, said to me, no, you know, we we like him, give him a chance. And so let's see how it goes. Should we give each other a chance? And I went, I don't really have a choice here, Brendan. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> so um, so he, he brought in, a, again, a completely different philosophy, um, you know, completely different style. Um, uh, yeah, and so I really enjoyed working with him. He brought in his own staff, both from a performance point of view and a coaching point of view. So, again, it was adapting again. Um, uh, but after, uh, let's say, five months, um, the AFL season ended um, and I started to think maybe it's a good time. I'd had two kids um, in Liverpool, um, been travelling a lot with the Socceroos for the four years behind it, been before that, been away for three years. Um, um, in the very, I think that I calculated there were seven days over 27 degrees in three years at Liverpool or whatever it was. <laughs> so uh, it was time to see the cool. sun again. Yep. And um, yeah, had some interest from from some AFL clubs and and decided it was it was time to go, and um, yeah, just walked in to see Brendan and said, "Look, you know, it's been great. No, absolutely nothing against you and what you're trying to build here, but you know, home is calling." And and yeah, it's interesting the way the managers just bring their entourage with them, isn't it? That's something we don't see see no. here. I mean, it's usually a couple of coaches, always a fitness guy, maybe a yep. physio, yep. and they just go with the manager wherever they go. And, yeah, uh, I think because it's transient, you know, as uh, much as we can be critical of it, um, managers are under all sorts of pressure, so they want to bring people they can trust. Yep. Uh, in Brendan's case, initially it was his best mate um, in terms of uh, his coach. Um, so there are people that 
um, might disagree with it, but I can understand it. You know, bring in people you can trust who know the way you work and and that's fine. And I worked really well with Glenn Driscoll. Yep. Still maintain a good good relationship mm. with him and yep. um, uh, who, was, who was his sort of performance physio. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just time to come home. Yeah. Okay, coming home, uh, I'm sure there was lots of interest from AFL clubs. I think uh, you, you got approached by just about every AFL club. Yeah, it was it was an interesting time because um, I obviously worked for Port Adelaide and felt that um, I'd probably um, done them a disservice by leaving when I did at the end of 2007, leaving Choco when I did because um, I was still contracted. Um, and so I've, I really felt like I owed them something. Um, but there was a big temptation to come to, to Melbourne um, to a couple of the sort of bigger Melbourne clubs and they'd They'd um, certainly offered more money and and substantially more money. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, at, at least double one club. Um, Your accountant thought you were crazy. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, he absolutely did. In fact, that's that's very true. Um, um, and uh, at that stage, Port Adelaide had twelve thousand members and were, you know, about to be kicked out of the competition. There was the tarps that they were playing in front of and. Um, yeah, the, uh, Johnny McCarthy had passed away um, on on mm, on an trip. off-season yeah. trip, and so it, it was about. There was no coach. Um, it was about at its lowest ebb. They had literally no money, and so um, yeah, it was probably coming from a club like Liverpool, uh, <laughs> where you you if you just say I want um, a private plane to go a private somewhere, private plane to go somewhere, yeah. they get it to to going to Port Adelaide was seen as being crazy. Um, but I'd felt loyalty to the club and I'd felt like it was a good project. They said to me, oh, we can't afford GPS for each player. We can't afford this. We can't afford that. So just just give me an opportunity to employ my own strength coach. So it's someone that I could trust and that's all I need. And so, um, so yeah, uh, uh, shunned the money, I guess, and, and uh, looked for... Um, a really good project to work with. Uh, they signed Ken Hinckley, which was just the perfect choice. Um, uh, Ken and I had never met before um, at all. What was your first um, impressions? I loved him from from the outset. Um, they signed Alan Rich Richardson as well to be his sort of senior assistant. Um, and I'd heard about Richo but never met him. And I remember us all sitting down together at West Lakes there in Adelaide and uh, for the first time. So they'd done the press conference and I'd never met them until walking into that. And then we went and had lunch and I just thought this is going to work really well. Um, it was just a great synergy um, from all three of us. And and then we got to work, you know, so it was um, very different to Liverpool. But um, what, again, this, this cultural difference, I mean... Yeah, you walk into an AFL club and immediately they respect the position, not the person, but they respect that you're the head fitness coach um, and... Uh, what you say goes, or you're the performance manager, whatever you want to call it. And Whereas Liverpool, you really felt you had to sort of prove yourself absolutely. time and time again. Yep, yeah, absolutely. With every new manager, with every new coach, with every new player, you had to prove yourself. Um, and the language, um, the disrespect that they had for Australian soccer or football, um, <laughs> you know, what do you know about football? Yep. You know, Aussies are crap. So, um, so there was all of that. And that's okay. That's part mm. of the... The challenge, and the general disrespect they had for sports science, and 
and um, you know GPS because they think it's invasive. And whereas in Australia, it's a lot more accepted that you're trying to help their career and help their performance. And um, so uh, the culture at, at Port Adelaide was great. There was still some really good staff that were there. Um, so um, yeah, it was just a matter of Ken coming in and and doing his thing and me supporting him in the best way that I could um, by, by providing him with as robust players as we could along with, you know, the great physios and doctors and other fitness coaches there. So so you say you love Kenny Higley from the start. What, what, makes, a, what makes a good coach? Uh, with Ken, it is physically impossible for him to lie. <laughs> um, so <laughs> he would never tell a player something and not back it up. With action, so um, yeah, I just love the fact that he was really upfront. Um, so um, yeah, the players knew where they stood, and um, in that, in the players had come from a very low base in 2010, 11, and 12. You know, they were almost a laughing stock at different times. They had no respect in the competition, so they were ready for someone like Ken to come in with a with a big stick. And I guess for us as a department to support him with that. Um, so um, no one thought we'd do any well. And I remember we won our first five games of the season, 5-0, and o, thinking, holy crap, you know, this is, this is new and exciting. And that immediately buys you, um, A, respect in the competition, B, the players think, OK, this coaching performance team knows what they're doing because we're feeling good, we're, our injuries aren't particularly high, um, we're running out games well. The Adelaide media jumped all over it because that's what the Adelaide media do. <laughs> um, and, yeah, we made finals in our first year when everyone thought we'd come last. But how can you, in the, in the space of a summer, OK, a change of coach, change of fitness, you've gone from being a laughing stock of the, of the competition in August one year yeah, yeah. to winning your first five games the next year. I mean... I guess if you could put your finger on exactly what it was, you'd, uh, yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd do it all the time. But yeah. what do you think of what happened in that uh, that six I th- months? I think it's confidence. Um, we really tried to instil confidence in the players. I, I bought back um, a different GPS company, um, some technology from that we're trying to get into Australia. And I sort of said to the players, nobody else is using this. This is just us using this. Um, I'd... We'd tried to instill a, a, a philosophy that AFL clubs traditionally had a recovery-based culture, that the game was so demanding, and it was and is, that you need to recover so much, whereas we tried to in- educate the players that, you know what, in soccer, in Tour de France, cycling, in, you know, in different sports around the world, no, you can do it. If you believe that you can do it, you can do it. And we tried to, as a department and a coaching department just instill that and nobody's working harder than you guys nobody's um, training harder than you guys and we did it wasn't we weren't lying to them we were training far harder than what we thought other clubs were and then you get momentum you win a couple of games that you weren't expected to win we beat the crows you know which was always a important one the bounce of the ball goes our way in a couple of games and you just get that momentum and it's, it's pretty hard to stop that on-field leaders, how important are they? Yeah, they were they were massive. We had some players in that time that just were ready to go. Um, you know, Travis Bogue and Dom Cassisi was captain. And also, uh, it's remiss of me to say this, but um, uh, when J-Mac passed away, they felt they had something to fight for as well. And, and that actually bonded the players 
together as a group um, and there, that really helped us in that first couple of years as well. So there was that aspect as well. We brought on a, uh, an unbelievable sports psychiatrist in a, in a guy by the name of Kerry Evans who'd worked with the All Blacks and he was fantastic for us and I would still consider him a mentor. So when you say a sports psychiatrist, what, what does a sports psychiatrist do? Yeah, he's very different <clears throat> to most in that he's very much a performance-based psychiatrist. And I, I don't want to give away Kerry's secrets, but yeah. he works with the All Blacks, with McLaren, with uh, – sorry, with Mercedes, not McLaren. He'll be very upset for me to saying that. Yeah. Um, the Formula One team with the All Blacks, with um, two very high-profile uh, one NBA and one NFL club. Mm. So he's very well, well respected. And um, uh, he, he's all about messaging um, to players. Um, when's the appropriate time to message and, and how to message? Um, what players hear when you are talking to them and how to frame um, coaching sessions and messaging. Now, Kerry's got the distinct advantages of he's been a professional soccer player. He played for the All Whites in New Zealand. Um, he's an intimidating guy to look at, um, so that helps. And when he's not working in performance psychiatry, he's um, trying to understand um, uh, axe murderers and, and serial killers. That's his daytime job. So he mm -hmm. has a real um, uh, understanding of the human brain and how it works under pressure. Um, so he's worked with pilots, with uh, military. and So that's, um, that's his model. And he implemented that with us and that really helped uh, myself, the department, Ken, Richo and the leaders leaders of the club that he worked with just, you know, and so that, that offers a slightly different sort of mindset than the traditional sort of psychology uh, models, which are not good or bad. Um, it's just that Kerry was a very good practitioner who helped us a lot in those early couple of years. So this second spell of yours at Port Adelaide was how many years? Uh, it was from 2013 season till the end of 2017. Right. Didn't manage to win a flag? No, we got to the prelim in 2014 um, and lost to Hawthorne by three points. We mm. uh, were down a lot in the last quarter, came back, got very close. Um, just couldn't quite... feel like you could have won it? Um, I think 2015 was our year where we were primed to, to go well, but for a few different reasons. It just just didn't happen for us. Maybe the expectation was too much. Um, uh, we lost some key players in that time and, um, yeah, we we thought we had the team to do it but it just didn't didn't work out. So, yeah, it was, um, it was a good time, great place to be around. Uh, loved everything about um, the club. It's a true football club, which is what really drew me to it and, and what I loved about it. Very much a historical, traditional football club. Mm. Well, it's been a fascinating journey so far, <laughs> from uh, from Parramatta to to Port Ad Port Adelaide to Socceroos to Liverpool back to Port Adelaide. There's still a couple of twists to the tale, but we won't have to leave that till uh, till next time because, as usual, we've run out of time. <laughs> and uh, but great to hear that uh, amazing story, and we'll look forward to the continuation of it uh, next episode. So, from Brookie and Burjo the podcast, see you next time. Cheers. Uh -huh.